Psalm 121, here is the word of the Lord. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Now, last week we began this short little series called In Between, and the reason why is because, you know, if you're new among us, we are now in between lead pastors, uh, and we find ourselves in this season of transition. You know, Matt, our, our pastor for 12 years, is now serving God elsewhere. Nick has not yet arrived, and here we are in the middle of it. And, you know, for us, it's very easy just to, you know, head down, power through, you know, through this transition phase, and just wait till we get to the new phase and figure out what that's all about. But what we saw last week is that God everywhere in the scriptures seems to, not everywhere, many places in the scriptures seems to lead his people into these places, into these times that we called liminal Times these in-between spaces, these wilderness places. And he has very specific reasons for doing so. And that reason, universally in the scripture, is so that God may sanctify his people. Bring those people to himself. Now, in that time, in that place, these, these in-between places, these wilderness locations and times, you can be filled with doubt and confusion and angst. I'm doubting my ability not to trip on this right now. Um, doubt and confusion and angst. But when God brings us into this time, this in-between space, what he wants to tell us, what he wants to teach us more than anything, not just hold on until the new phase comes, but here, right now, what we saw last week is that we, Roswell Community Church, do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we saw that from Deuteronomy chapter 8 uh, as Moses interpreted the Israelites' time in the wilderness. But that's not the only thing that God wants to teach his people in these in-between spaces. And so we're going to consider over the next few weeks some of the other lessons God wants to teach us during this time. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to be considering the Psalms of Ascent. I don't know if you know these. It's a series of 15 psalms starting in Psalm 120 going to Psalm 135. They're called the Psalms of Ascent. And you, can know, you know that because I'm not making this up. It's actually the title is on the psalm itself. It says, a psalm of ascent. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that these were pilgrimage psalms. You could just imagine these 15 psalms in like a, a songbook. And, and as the people of God came from their various locations in Israel to the three appointed feasts, that were occurring in Jerusalem every year, they would take this songbook with them. 
probably not a songbook. They probably just knew it because books were expensive. But the point is, these are the songs that they sang as they went from their home to Jerusalem for the appointed feasts. And so these psalms have the kinds of truths that that God's people needed to be reminded of as they were not home, but not yet in Jerusalem, but in this in-between pilgrimage space. And so we too must remind ourselves of these truths. So today we're going to consider Psalm 121. And the key phrase that sums up this whole thing, the key truth that we need to ingest and internalize and metabolize as a congregation during this in-between time is this. The Lord is your keeper. Now, in order to understand that, we're going to break it down into two sections. Number one, the Lord keeps us by his vigorous help. And then number two, the Lord keeps us by his loving attention. So let's start with number one. The Lord keeps us by his vigorous help. And you see that in verses one and two. Listen, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, the psalmist is in a different world altogether than we are. Like, we're talking 2,000 plus years ago, 2,500 years ago-ish. And so that world was altogether different from the world that you and I grew up in. That was, a, that was an enchanted world, so to speak. The assumption for people growing up in the ancient Near East is that the world was sort of like charged with spirits and demons, and that those spirits and demons could influence a person's life or a congregation's life for good or for evil. And in that kind of world, in an enchanted world, there were places and objects that were places and objects of power where actual divine power resided. This is why it was so distressing to the Israelites when the Philistines, uh, if you remember in 1 Samuel, captured the Ark of the Covenant. You remember this? Because in that box resided the power of God. Okay, so in that enchanted kind of world, places, people, it's, it's charged with spiritual power. Therefore, the psalmist, the pilgrims, who are in these in-between places, they had much to fear. And they had much to fear that, frankly, we no longer have to fear. You know, we, I wish I could get more into it, but, you know, post-scientific revolution, post-enlightenment, we, we live now in more of a disenchanted world. Like, for example, right after I leave here, I'm going to get on a flight with my family. Uh, we're going to Colorado. It's a pilgrimage of sorts, uh, family vacation. And, you know, we're going to drive in a car <laughs> with an internal combustion engine down to the airport. And then we're going to get on a plane that's going to take us tens of thousands of miles, feet, into the air. <laughs> it's not that mind-blowing. But into the air at hundreds of miles per hour, and it's going to land us safely in Denver. Now, it doesn't even occur to me to worry about that. I'm also not an Enneagram 6, but regardless, 
It doesn't even occur to me to worry about that. My wife is, and she's, you know, she's got all the worries for me. Um, like, it doesn't occur to me that some sort of sky witch is going to mess with the instrumentation and make our plane go off course or whatever. It doesn't even occur to me. I trust in the mind-blowing technology that is going to deliver us there. And if you stopped me on my way out, and you said, yeah, but Steve, don't you believe in spirits and demons? And I said, well, yeah, of course I do. I mean, the Bible teaches that. Yes, of course I do. But I grew up, just like all of you grew up, in a disenchanted world. That's not the same world that I grew up in. So therefore, I don't even think about it much. It's just sort of... It's just sort of there, and yes, but I don't even think about it. Not so with the psalmist. To be a pilgrim going from your home to Jerusalem, which could have been a very long journey, it was a frightful prospect. And so what does this psalmist do? This psalmist looks to the hills. Now, there are mountains that surround Jerusalem. They're not huge, but they are mountains that surround Jerusalem. And they, to the psalmist, are a symbol of protection, right? So just like you see this in uh, Psalm 125, verse 2, it says, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, this is another one of the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 125, 2, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. So these mountains are a symbol of the protection that the psalmist looks for. Therefore, he asks, from where does my help come? Now, this word help. Okay, this is, this is fascinating. Now, this word help. In English, eh. It, 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 it's, not, it's not much. It, we, we don't, if you have to have help, you know, in, in English. It's like, I could do this on my own, but it'd be nice to have some help. Like, if, if someone's, if you gotta move, you call up your friend, you say, hey, I need some help moving these boxes into the truck. It's like, I could do it. Like, it's gonna inconvenience me. I'm gonna be more tired at the end of the day, but uh, you know what, I could do it. But it would be nice to have some help. So, so in English, the word help kind of means, like, I'll manage okay, but maybe with some more inconvenience. Like, and so, you know, if we take that, our cultural linguistic understanding of help, and apply it to what the psalmist is asking, basically what he's asking is, you know, Lord, in this frightful space of pilgrimage, in this in-between, in this, you know, period filled with doubt and uncertainty, it would be nice if you could just give me a little help. It'd be nice if you could assist me on this pilgrimage. But that's not what help means. It's a, it's a very weak word to translate the word that's underneath it. It's a Hebrew word, and the word is ezer. Mm. You taste that? This sounds, it's ezer. This means or, or I should say it has the sense of a figure of great power stooping to rescue the powerless. John Goldengay, a Hebrew scholar, says uh, that in English, 
Without help, we'd manage. But without Ezer, we'd be dead. That's the power of this word. Therefore, the psalmist understands himself to be in a real sense of danger. I'm on this pilgrimage. I could fall. I could get robbed. The, the, the demons that inhabit, they, they could come and they could influence me for, for evil. Like it's a very frightful prospect. And so he looks to the hills and he says, from where does my help, from where does my Ezer come? And his confidence is sure. He says, I look to the hills and I know my help comes from the Lord. Who made heaven and earth? Now, let's, let's stick on this phrase for a minute. The maker of heaven and earth. This phrase, you know, I'm, I'm in a dangerous situation. It's doubt. It's uncertain. We don't know. It's dark. I look to the hills. From where does this powerful rescue, from where is this powerful rescue going to come? And he says, the maker of heaven and earth. This invokes the Lord's unlimited power. Like the psalmist could ask for a thousand different defenses made out of the stuff of earth, whether weaponry or whatever, but he says, no, I have no time for that. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And there's this magnificent phrase, or I should say a magnificent answer, in the Heidelberg Catechism. The first, or I should say the 26th question asks, what do you mean when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? Are you ready for this answer? Are you, it just, okay, here it is. What do you mean? That the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence, is my God and Father because of Christ his Son. I trust him so much that I do not doubt that he will provide whatever I need for body and soul, and he will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this sad world. Now, listen, he is able to do this because he is almighty God. He desires or he is willing to do this because he is a faithful father. Ha, <laughs> okay, now that's what it means. So in this liminal space that the psalmist finds himself in, well, along with the congregation of other pilgrims, what he's asking for is the saving protection of his God. Help, Ezra. And so we need to remember this too. As a congregation whom the Lord loves, we need to remember the Lord is our help. So the Lord keeps us by his vigorous help. Number two, the Lord keeps us by his loving attention. Now, we're going to see in the next few verses what that help is made out of. So look at verse 3. He will not let your foot be moved. 
He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So I'm sure you heard it. The key word here is keep. And there's two main senses that we see this word in the Old Testament. This is a very common word in the Old Testament. There's two major senses. Number one, keep in the sense of defense. So for example, you remember in Genesis chapter two when the Lord makes uh, the first man, Adam, and he sets him in a garden, the garden of Eden. What does he say? Here's your vocation, Adam. It is to work it and keep it. So here you are in the garden, all you do your entire life is formed by these two phrases, to work it and to keep it. Now, to work the garden, that's easy, we understand that. That's to cultivate it and to you know, make sure the crops are doing fine. But to keep it, if, if working it means doing all the things you would normally do in a garden, what does it mean to keep it? It means to defend the garden. Well, what is there to defend in paradise? Well, we, we know there's a serpent lurking outside. And of course, Adam didn't keep it. But regardless, that's the sense that it has. Keep in the sense of defense. But the second sense this word has is to observe. So for this, you get things like, you know, keep the Sabbath in the Ten Commandments or observe the Sabbath. Now, we tend to think of say, keep the Sabbath, as obey the Sabbath. And of course, that's true. That, that's definitely there. But if you go to the Hebrew scholars on this, they have much more to say about this. And they would say that keep doesn't mean like naked obedience. It, just, it doesn't mean like sheer obedience. What it means is to, yes, also that, but keep that commandment in front of your mind, in, embedded in your int- attention at all times. So to keep the Sabbath means allow the Sabbath to penetrate your mind and your attention so that it is always before you. Always hold it in your mind. So has that ever occurred to you that you and I take up space in the divine attention? It's an astonishing thought because we see both of these senses here in Psalm 121. He calls out, first of all, for help, which we just looked at. Like, from where does my help come? Okay, there's the sense of he's keeping us by his defense, by his rescue. But then in verse 8, where he says, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. He will keep your life. He will keep you from all evil. It means that he keeps us continually in his mind. You and I, both as individuals and as a congregation, take up space in the divine attention. And not just like as a, as a you know, bullet point on the list. It's like, okay, Roswell Community Church, I gotta keep them in mind. No, it's like, even to the minutest details, does he keep his mind upon us? 
He keeps continuous, unbreaking thought for our congregation. He's the one who led us into this liminal space. But here, right in the middle of things, in this in-between, he keeps his thoughts fixed continually on us. No matter how dark it is, no matter how confusing this is, his eyes are upon us. And we see in verse 4 that that attention is never interrupted. It says that he keeps you, that the one who keeps you will neither slumber nor sleep. And this is, I mean, this is amazing because if you'll remember, this is not true of other gods. You remember Elijah's contest with the prophets of Baal, how they're dancing around like madmen around their altars trying to get Baal to answer them and they're cutting their flesh and bleeding all over the place. And Elijah taunts them and saying, shout louder. Maybe he's taking a nap. Maybe he's asleep. Rouse him. But what the psalmist attests to here is that God Yahweh, the Lord, never sleeps nor slumbers. His attention is fixed upon his beloved, and it is never interrupted. And not merely in general, in the minutest details. So, for example, in Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6, it says, O Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in before and behind. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Or let's hear it from Jesus' own lips. In Luke chapter 12, he says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them falls to the ground. Not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. <laughs> I mean... That is astonishing. We've got to remember. We've got to remember this as, as we travel through this in-between place that the Lord sees us, the Lord knows us, and the Lord keeps us. The Lord knew. I mean, if, if we're to believe what David writes in Psalm 139, the Lord knew that this transition was coming from before we were even in the womb. And through this time, the Lord is going to keep us in his thoughts, even in the granular details of our experience. And this is what we must remember during this period of transition. Now, that's marvelous. Yes, I mean, we can all agree. If you love the Lord... That is a marvelous thing to hear. But precisely in the confusion of the in-between, that's where it gets difficult to believe this kind of thing. Like if you've ever walked through a period of confusion, doubt, darkness, what we've been calling liminal spaces, you know 
that although your belief structure, you can check off the bun a bunch of boxes, you can say, oh yes, I believe this, 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 and this, I mentally assent to these truths, the experience is far different. It is very difficult to believe those things all the way down. It is in those times where those truths, in fact, are the hardest to believe. I mean, you know, there may be a lot of us here for whom, you know, I could end the sermon here and you'd be like, yes and amen, the Lord is our keeper, he is our help, praise God, and you go home. But for those of us who are in a personal wilderness, a personal liminal space, your life is filled with doubt, maybe despair, uncertainty, the path behind is gone, the path ahead is shrouded in fog, you don't know where to go, the Lord seems away from you, apart from you, to be hiding himself. And so yes, we agree in theory that the Lord is our keeper. We agree in theory that the Lord is our helper, our rescuer, our defender. But all the way down, well, there it's more of a struggle. So the question is this. How do I believe something when I don't feel it. Now, I, I'm restraining myself here. There's, th this, there's a lot of history here. I, wa I, want it, I want to do it. I can't do it. So instead, let me just tell you how it's been for me. Now, how do I believe something when I don't feel it? Well, as I mentioned last week, you know, I've been contending with this kind of liminal space, this liminal time for almost like a decade, this doubt, this confusion, this uncertainty about where to go or who, who I am, who God is, who, and everything. You have to imagine me sitting in my living room every day, every morning for 10 years, drinking my coffee with my Bible open, trying to eke out prayers as best as I can and by the way, prayer in this space is the hardest thing because it's the wilderness, it's the liminal time, the liminal space that actually casts doubt on whether God is even there at all. And so it is very difficult day after day. It, day after day, I'm knocking on the doors of heaven and yet the door is closed, the lights are out, and I'm left on the porch just looking in the window saying, is anybody home? And the answer seems for all the world to be, no. Nobody's home. So after I pray, I look into my hands to see what I've received, and more often than not, I, I don't see anything. And then one night I'm laying down with my youngest son, who's seven years old, to get him to bed. And this kid at bedtime has all the questions. I don't know what it is about that time, but he just, he wants to talk about all the things. And so this particular night, his question was, Dad, how do we know that things are real? He said, sometimes I feel like I'm living in a dream. For example, how do we know that bones are real? This, it's my kid. Um, he's asking the, the good questions. And, and the thing is, like I could, I, 
I could give them like an hour, I would turn on the lights and, okay, get out the whiteboard and give them an hour-long lecture about the history of Western philosophy and all the philosophers who have contended with this very question from Plato to David Hume, but I don't think that's what he's looking for in this moment. And so I just say to him, I don't know, buddy. Do your bones feel real? And he goes, yeah, they feel real. I said, well, then I guess they're real. And then he asked me the question for which those other questions were just the prelude. His voice gets a little quieter, and I can hear it's trembling a little bit with emotion. And he says, Dad, I'm not sure if my love for you is real. Like when I think about you, my heart doesn't sing. And so I pause for a moment. And then I say, buddy, that's okay. Nobody's heart sings all the time. But in this time, when you're not sure if that's real, all you have to do is to remind yourself that I love you. Your dad loves you. And then one day, if you keep reminding yourself of that, your song will return. And he says, thanks, Dad. And he rolls over and he falls asleep instantly. And as I'm laying there next to him in the dark, he's breathing heavy. It's as if those words become God's words to me. My son, I see and I know that you have been walking in the wilderness for a long time, and I can see the kind of distress that it causes you. You're not sure if your love for me is real. But take heart and fear not. Nobody's heart sings all the time. Keep reminding yourself, your father loves you, and one day your song will return. It was a good night. And maybe we still doubt that God is our helper, that God is our keeper. And that is okay. That is perfectly normal. But let us now look to Jesus Christ so that we may remember the extent of God's love. He, Jesus, is the eternal monument that our doubts, while normal, perfectly normal, are not true. Like in the liminal space, it is easy to believe that God is withholding his help, his rescue, his defense. It is easy to believe that he is not keeping us in his attention, that he is not keeping our lives precisely because it feels like we must have done something wrong. He must have withdrawn himself because we have unrepentant sin, whatever. 
And we have good reason for that. We have good reason to believe that because, you know, if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 28, as Moses is outlining the curses for disobedience that the congregation of Israel will suffer if they break the covenant, he says this in Deuteronomy 28, 29, and you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in the darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways, and you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually. And listen, and there shall be no one to help you. You break the covenant, the help is revoked. But if we go to John chapter 10, listen to this. Jesus says to his disciples, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And listen, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Jesus is saying in other words, I am the keeper of my sheep. I am the help of my people. And once they come into my hand, there is nothing that can take them away. There is nothing that could snatch them out of my hand, themselves included. Jesus even prays for us to this end. In John chapter 17, he says, I do not ask that you take them, his disciples, out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus Christ himself has prayed for us. He has prayed that the Father will keep us from all evil. And will his prayers go unanswered? He has prayed that we might be kept from all evil. He has prayed that our going out and our coming in may be kept in the loving and defensive attention of God. But when we find ourselves in these liminal spaces, full of doubt, full of despair, full of anguish, not knowing which way to go, it is still easy to believe that we have fallen under a curse, that we have fallen under the curse of Deuteronomy 28. If you break the law, if you break the covenant, there will be no one to help you. But brothers and sisters, come with me to Calvary and see the Lord Jesus hung on a cross in the Mediterranean sun and hear those powerful words, that cry of dereliction erupt from his mouth. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then as you look at that, remember what Paul teaches us in Galatians chapter 3, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse. And so Christ, in that moment, hanging on the cross, is the embodiment of the curses of God. As you see him hanging there, these are the words from Deuteronomy 28 that course through his body. 
And you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in the darkness. And you, Jesus, shall not prosper in your ways. And you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually. And there on the cross, there shall be no one to help you. The curse of God was embodied in Jesus Christ. And as he gave up his final breath, do you know what that means? It means the full power of that curse was spent. That curse can never be applied to God's people again. And if we believe in this saving death and resurrection and his atonement for our sins by his shed blood on the cross, then we know that the curse of God will never hold power against us again. In fact, it's the opposite. All the blessings that Christ earned for himself now belong to his people, all who believe in him. And therefore, we may be sure that whether we walk in confusion, whether we walk in doubt, or whether we walk in surety, whether our heart sings or whether our heart is near to breaking, the Lord is our keeper. And he will keep our going in, excuse me, our coming in and our going out from this time forth and forevermore. Amen? Amen. We come to the table now as we do every week. And this table is a symbol of exactly what we've been talking about here. This table has been set in our wilderness. And by coming here and receiving the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, he is reminding us, I am your keeper. I will keep your going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Jesus Christ, our host, has set this table for us in this in-between space so that we might remember that the Lord is our help and the Lord is our keeper. So let us pray. Our Father in heaven, many of us wander in dark places, unable to see where to go or what to do. Some of us do not. Some of us are walking on the heights of joy. But as a congregation, we are in the middle of two realities. And so we pray that you would keep us, fix us in your loving attention. Be our help. Come to our rescue. And let it be said at the end of our time of transition, this is the congregation of the Lord. And we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said. We come to the table now. For all of you who love Jesus, who have been cleansed by his blood, this table is for you. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ.